Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. And welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey. And my name is Periwinkle Degaton. How's it going? Periwinkle Degaton. I figured out that's what his first name is. Periwinkle. No wonder he calls himself Pear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's uh, so manly. <laughs> it's more, it's manlier than Periwinkle. I could he could he could shorten it to Winky instead of Pear. Um, we are going to apologize right now. Um, I don't know whose fault it was. It's yours, your fault. Uh, well, you're the one with the lousy memory. Uh, but I'm the one with the seal trap memory, so... I don't remember it being my fault, so it has to be your fault. Um, last week, uh, as you heard, we, we had episode 50, <laughs> and, and we called it episode 49. Now, you would think that we would make a big deal out of the fact that we hit 50 episodes. And we didn't. No, we didn't. Because we suck. <laughs> you suck. You suck more. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that argument really went um, <laughs> mature quickly. 
<laughs> I know. I feel badly now because I do. You know me. I like to make a big deal out of you know. I mean, come on. They're just numbers, and the the issue wasn't anything special. But still, yeah. If I'd have realized it was our fiftieth, it would have been, hey, welcome to the fiftieth, and you know, all these guest stars that never actually come on the show and all that ridiculousness. But yeah, <laughs> totally dropped the ball with that one. B. Arthur, the nineteen seventy-two <laughs> Miami Dolphins. Exactly. <laughs> Linda Carter. Um, oh, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, of course, this is audio, so it would be kind of yeah. Um, however, it does occur to me that this is our fiftieth episode together because there was the one I did on my own. Uh, that's true. So this is sort of episode fifty in a weird way. In a weird way. In a way. In a way. And actually, this is a much, much... Well, I don't know what you think. I won't speak for you, but I think this is a much, much better episode than uh, than the than last... Or not episode, but um, uh, issue that we're going to cover than well, the one last time around, too. So, Well, as much as uh, I've enjoyed the first 16 issues to, to one extent or another, some were clunkers, some were really good, this, to me, this issue we're going to be discussing today is the start of the solidly good run of this title. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it hits the ground running with this issue, and it just keeps on going until basically after the crisis, really. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, th- th- there are some stories that are slower than others. Yeah, I would say that the one after this, we're going to have fun kind of, or I'm going to have fun anyway, kind of kind of tearing it down a little bit, because... Yeah, I, I I tentatively agree with you, but then I remember what next issue is, and it's like, oh, oh no, no, I love that. Oh man, I was reading it this morning. I was just like, God, I love this issue. But I have a, I have a sentimental attachment to the issue. Too, oh, okay. So. It's the villain in that one again. It's it's you know the, that's the problem is that you know I like what's going on with the All Stars proper and and the introduction. I love the introduction of new characters. That's one of the best issues of. Roy Thomas doing some serious retconning that actually makes sense and makes everything make sense, but it's another one of those where oh by uh, by the way your villain in, for this issue is uh, Vulcan and it's like uh... yeah exactly you know so the rest of it's really good it's just the villain's really seriously lame ass but we'll get to that when we get but, to that but this one even the Joe Kubert cover is kind of cool no. No, it's not. <laughs> I actually liked this cover. Up. It's okay, but you know what I do like. You know, Robot Man looks absolutely ridiculous on it. But what I do like is you've got—I uh, don't know what the actor's name was—but the guy that played the man on Chico and the Man is like yelling down off the off the podium. He's playing the judge in this one. The court just, has found you guilty. I, like I want to call him Judge Wapner. <laughs> judge Wapner. <laughs> <laughs> He looks like a cross between Stan Lee and the dude that played Alfred on the old Batman TV show. (laughs) Oh, God, what was his name? I don't know. He's been dead for a long, long time. Hell, the guy that played uh, the man on Chico and the Man. And there's like like three listeners that are probably going to even know what the hell I'm talking about with Chico and the Man. That's a very ancient reference. Yeah, there's that. about six There's about six listeners that know who the hell Judge Wapner was. So. <laughs> Ah, I just feel older every day. Every time we podcast, I just feel older and older. But uh, if you've ever seen that guy was the only other thing I know him uh, from other than Chico and the Man was if you've ever seen the Poseidon Adventure, 
Keep... Wasn't he in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, oh, too? Oh, shit, that's right. Yes, he's the grandfather. The grandfather. Yes, that's huh. right. I'm sorry. I, see, I don't like that movie, so I always kind of forget about that. But, yeah, you're right. Yeah. How could you not like I that know, Everybody always says, oh, can you not? Like, really? I just don't. It just creeps me to hell. No, usually, usually I get annoyed when people say that, too. It's just Gene Wilder was just so awesome in that film that it, it, it's like my brain can't process what you just said. I know. I'm sorry. It's, it's just one of those. It's just one of those movies i can't i cannot explain it but it just it seriously makes my skin crawl there's something creepy about that movie that well, I've never been able to watch. rather the point i mean it's a it's 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 a guy letting children suffer horrible horrible fates <laughs> but it's we see it's the difference between that one and the the tim burton version uh, and my wife said this to me after we, we saw the Tim Burton version, which she prefers because she likes Tim Burton. She goes, in the Gene Wilder version, the kids were punished, but it was just, you know, they were basically left to their own fate. You right. know, it was their option to do it. In the Tim Burton version, Willy Wonka was punishing the children, like <laughs> purposefully. Like he set everything up to do this. <laughs> and you had a uh, Danny Elfman score. In the uh, in the Burton one, shocking, I know, but still. La, 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 la. See, I hadn't I hadn't seen that one. I, I I don't know if I'll ever make it. At one point, I was I you know I was a huge uh, uh, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman fan. You know, was determined to to see or listen to everything they did. And at some point, I just kind of I don't know. He's he's done a number of films now where I'm kind of like yeah, I don't know if I need to watch that. You know what I mean? But I can see that. I mean, Planet of the Apes was pretty awful. I liked that movie right up until the end, and the end retroactively ruined the entire rest of the movie for me. But I don't know. One of these days, I'll I'll have to go back and and give a serious examination of that movie for some podcast or other. It's it's kind of sad that Helena Bonham Carter in monkey makeup was actually hotter <laughs> than Nova. I don't quite know how that works. <laughs> but I guess it just proves how hot Helena Bottom Carter is that she can be in full monkey makeup and you're still like, damn, that is hot. So, I don't know. <laughs> that may sound weird and I just probably there's probably a lot of listeners going, What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I can back <laughs> you up on that one or not. I draw the line at ape fuck. women. No. Well most of the time. Do you love? <laughs> Can you love? <laughs> well, you're giving us the synopsis on this one. Oh, no, it comes down to me. That's never good. Uh, all right, we're taking a look at All-Star Squadron number 17. This is the January 1983 issue. Original cover price, 60 cents. has a horrible cover by Joe Kubert <laughs> depicting... Uh, Again, this Stan Lee and uh, and what I say, Alfred from Batman TV show combination judge yelling down from the stand. He says, "The court has found you guilty and sentences sentences you sentences that's hard to say sentences you to be destroyed." And he's pointing at Robot Man, who's a very just oddly drawn Robot Man, and this and Robot Man's all chained to the floor of the court uh, courtroom. While the horrified all-stars look on, it says, Is he man or monster? The trial of Robot Man. 
All right, so uh, let's see. Roy Thomas is the writer on this one. Adrian Gonzalez, layout artist. Rick Hoberg, inker, embellisher. Uh, Adam Kubert was the letter. Now, that is uh, one of the sons of Andy Kubert. And uh, he's an artist today, right? They're both artists yep. these days. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he drew the Hulk for a long time mm-hmm. with Peter David. Uh, he did a short run that was horrendously late uh, with Jeff Johns and Richard Donner on Action Comics. Yeah. Yeah. See, I have trouble keeping the two of them because it's Andy and Adam, and I, I honestly I can't keep them straight. But I, I, I knew that I had seen his stuff out, so I was yeah. I remember that run of uh, of the Superman stuff, but I wasn't like again. I wasn't sure if that was him or his brother. Uh, let's see, Carl Gafford, colorist, Len Wein, editor. This story is entitled "To Slay the Body Electric," which I, I kind of like that title. I think that's pretty cool. So, uh, their adventure with Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor over the All-Stars consisting of Robot Man, Commander Steel, Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick, and Firebrand return to New York City, specifically to the old lab where Robert Crane, now Robot Man, used to work. There the team is met by Robot Man's old friend and assistant, Chuck Grayson, and the woman who was Robert Crane's fiance, Joan Carter. Joan has this funny feeling about Robot Man and an odd attraction to him that she just can't explain, not realizing he is, in fact, just Robert Crane's brain in a convenient stay-fresh metal can. But just as Robot Man and his old friends start to catch up with each other, a police bullhorn orders our hero to come out. He does, accompanied by his all-star teammates, and attempts to surrender peacefully to face the accusations leveled against him by shyster lawyer... Uh, Sam Slattery, but his well-meaning compatriots, Johnny Quick and Firebrand, thinking they are defending his honor, attack the police, disarming them and almost sending the situation spiraling out of control before Liberty Bell manages to rein them in. Robot Man, securing a promise from the cops to leave his friends be if he surrenders, gives himself up and is escorted away bound in heavy chains while a smirking Slattery looks on. Johnny Quick is pissed about the situation in general, and with Liberty Bell in particular, and storms off. Thanks to sensationalistic headlines, the public is torn over what to think about the Robot Man case. Is he man or monster? Retreated to a scene of just what a scumbag Slattery is as we see him pay a guy to commit perjury and claim Robot Man kicked a crippled newsboy. Turns out Slattery is... That's true. It's in the story. No, I know it's true. It's just this is the guy's big plan. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's kind of silly. <laughs> Turns out that Slattery is just in it uh, for a piece of whatever value Crane's robot body invention might have commercially if mass produced. Later, under cover of darkness, the imprisoned robot man changes to his Paul Dennis disguise, which he keeps uh, concealed inside his chest plate and slips out of jail to meet up with Grayson and his lawyer to discuss the upcoming trial. Johnny Quick and his pal Foggy Nelson, or whatever the hell his name is, get into a bar brawl over the whole robots are going to take our jobs argument, and uh, Johnny decides that come hell or high water, guilty verdict or exoneration, he's not going to let them melt down his pal. Trial day arrives, and Robot Man is escorted into a rickety old courthouse. We are specifically told that it is old and rickety. Why? Could that be important? What do you think? 
Robot Man is escorted into the rickety old courthouse, chains and all, as the crowd turns ugly and someone pelts him with a tomato. Joan arrives to wipe it off and reflects for about the umpteenth time so far this issue on how much he reminds her of the man that she loved. Testimony is given by Robot Man's comrades and affidavits affidavits from the likes of absent members like Superman, Wonder Woman, and Hawkman are presented. But because they are all quote-unquote mystery men whose identities are not known, they are not admissible in court. Things don't look good for Robot Man. Eventually, Chuck Grayson is called to the stand, and even though I'm pretty freaking sure that Robot Man specifically asked him not to, he spills the beans about Robot, uh, yeah, Robot, Robert Crane's quote-unquote death and transformation into the metallic superhero. After a tearful reunion with Joan, who is shocked and pleased to learn that the man, uh, excuse me, let me start that over. After a tearful reunion with Joan, who is shocked and pleased to learn that her man is not so dead after all, things are looking a little more hopeful for Robot Man's case. He is even given an opportunity to speak on his own behalf, and his impassioned statements to the jury look to possibly be turning the tide of the trial. It is at this moment that Johnny Quick and his civilian identity suddenly bolts from the room. Why, you ask? Patience, patience, gentle listener. All will be revealed. Suddenly, the roof collapses. Hey, I told you it was a rickety old courthouse. (laughs) So, you know, if you didn't see that coming, that's your own lookout. And everyone is going to get squished. Steel is conveniently knocked out so that it is, of course, Robot Man to the rescue. He supports the roof to allow everyone to safely escape, and he personally trucks Slattery, the scumbag lawyer who suffered a heart attack during the incident, to the hospital. Robot Man returns to the courthouse and receives a hero's welcome. He saved the day, and even that dirtball Slattery, so the Blue Fairy comes down and makes him into a real boy, or something like that. Outside, Johnny Quick confesses that he realized the ceiling... uh, he realized the ceiling was about to collapse, and rather than, like, you know, tell anybody about it or anything, he instead used his super speed to clock steel so that Robot Man could have his moment to shine, effectively putting dozens of lives in mortal danger just so he could play out a hunch, because that's what superheroes do, right? <sighs> Idiot. All's well that ends well. Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell go back to making Google eyes at each other once again. And speaking of Google eyes, the original Brainwave shows up thinking some sinister thoughts about what he's going to do to the JSA and the (laughs) All-Stars. All righty. Now to get into the historical notes. Uh, 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 Put the brakes on right there, pal. Because I am very pleased to be able to say... That for this Father's Day, my wife, my wife is awesome. My wife tells me, hey, you can buy a book. You can buy any book that you want to. And says, since Amazon.com apparently doesn't have any porn, I bought All-Star Companion Volume 2. So now I can do historical notes, too. Isn't it, isn't it a great book, though? It is you, awesome. It got, is. You have profiles and all the characters. Yeah. And- it's pretty. It's pretty. I like it. I'm just going to stare at it now. Oh, wait. I'm supposed to read stuff. Okay, so... And uh, I'm creeped out, so go for it. <laughs> no, it is. It's gorgeous. And unfortunately, uh, I, I haven't had time to do much other than just kind of flip through it so far, but I do intend to fully read it cover to cover as I did with the first volume because I really liked it. I like the insights into the characters. And it's just chock full with, like, 
you know, art and, you know, it, it's just, it's awesome. It's totally worth what I paid for it. So I'm really glad I got it. Now I got to get the other two volumes. Uh, let's see, historical notes for this one. The title, of course, comes from a line of poetry by Walt Whitman, I Sing the Body Electric, and Ray Bradbury's use of the same title uh, as a book, uh, as the, ah, Ray Bradbury's use of same as the title of a book. Okay, that one reads, it just reads kind of funny. Adam Kubert, son of cover artist Joe Kubert, lettered this issue. We talked about that. Since then, he and his brother Andy have become major artists in the comic book field. Well, we pointed that out already. Carla Conway, then wife of comics writer Jerry Conway, is the daughter of an attorney and knew enough about her father's business to offer uh, Robot Man a free, or actually, that's uh, abbreviated for Roy Thomas, to offer Roy Thomas, a bit of free expertise concerning the trial of Robot Man, and is credited on the splash page for giving a, be- a, a bit of extra legal advice. I thought that was kind of cool. Beginning with this issue, Carl Gafford's job as assistant editor is filled by Nicola Cuddy. Is it Nicola? Is that how you pronounce that? Nicola I Cuddy? think so. Himself an artist and writer. And for the longest time, I thought Nicola Cuddy was actually a woman. <laughs> well, it's kind of like Nikola Tesla. Ah, I gotcha. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. The name of Shyster, the Shyster lawyer was altered from Sam Slug with two G's in Star Spangled Comics number 8, to Sam Slattery as being less corny. I, I guess, if you say so. Johnny Quick makes a passing reference to Joe Palooka, the hero of one of the most popular daily comic strips in the country's newspapers during World War II. I only know Joe Palooka from the uh, the bubblegum myself, but I guess he was very popular. Isn't that Bazooka Joe? Oh, maybe you're right. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Ah, Paluka Joe, Bazooka Joe, whatever, Joe Paluka, whatever. Moving on. <laughs> Affidavits from several all-stars saying Robot Man is as human as themselves contain the irony that Superman is, in fact, an outer space alien, which I think a lot of people forget. Yeah, in, I, th- I think so, too. In court, Chuck Grayson uh, relates a uh, several-page origin of robot man naturally omitting the fact that dr bob crane is now quote-unquote paul dennis the brainwave is introduced in a cameo panel the letters page contains a mildly disparaging reference to the whatever happened to backup series running till recently in dc comics presents roy thomas had persuaded dc to discontinue the use therein of all-star squadron members since it often revealed facts about their 1980s lives that tied his hands. Roy Thomas tried, though, uh, to live with what had already been published therein and would later script the series entry on the Black Pirate, who wasn't a 20th century hero, but, as it, would hap- uh, as it happened, would later appear in an issue or two of All-Star Squadron. The same letters page uh, answered... The same letters page answer revealed that there were two heroes on Earth 2 called Manhunter, the characters published in the 40s by DC and Quality. One letter in number 17 is from Fred DeBoom, who since provided copies of JSA-related and other original art from his collection to the pages of Alter Ego, which is, of course, Roy Thomas' magazine. And I think that covers us on historical... Yeah, that covers us on historical notes for 17. So uh, what you got on this one, Mike? Well, one, the art in this issue is absolutely freaking gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, just from beginning to end, 
it, just everything about it. They, they do full page splashes that are very dramatic. Uh, the opening splash page with Robot Man jumping down off of the ladder with Commander Steel following him. It's just such a very dynamic way to start the book. But even the mundane stuff, like on the next page, it shows them walking down, walking into the laboratory, and the backgrounds are just so freaking detailed. And it's like, you know, you got your Kirby equipment in the background of the lab, but just... I love this issue. I, I love just about just about everything about it. There's some things in here that kind of bug the crap out of me. But uh, uh, starting kind of with the Robert Crane's ex-fiance kind of having an attraction to Robot Man for absolutely no reason. That just seemed kind of weird and forced. But, you know, I guess it's just a convention of the time. But uh, I... I the biggest problem I have with this entire issue is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt basically says, well, we got to let the courts decide this. No. No. Robot Man is an integral part of the war effort. He is a member of the All-Star Squadron. He is one of the main members of the All-Star Squadron because the JSA is off in the military. So really, he should have kind of stepped in and said, you know, hey... No, he, he, you know, as far as this administration is concerned, he is a human first and a robot second. I just, I just hate that that didn't happen. But the, uh, the splash page on page six of Robot Man and Chains is awesome, followed by that three-quarter panel on page seven where he's also in chains. Just everything looks so good on this page. Um, we get a little bit of Marvel Comics exposition on page nine with a bunch of people on a city street talking about what they think of Robot Man. Uh, that's straight out of the Stan Lee Spider-Man playbook. Yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. Uh, also page nine, kicking a newsboy. Really? <laughs> kicking a newsboy a cri- that, crippled newsboy a crippled yeah. that's the best you know crutchy from newsies gets kicked by robot man yeah that that makes sense um i don't care how realistic a rubber face is it's not going to pass for real <laughs> um also what the hell happens to his uh his mullet when he puts on the mask because he's got that thing on the back of his head that looks like he's got long hair <laughs> you're right you're right. Um, just curious. I mean, it's it's the same thing where what happens to Superman's cape when he tucks it into his uh, to his suit, maybe the jacket and all that. Walks uh, around with a cape wedgie all day. <laughs> page eleven. The shot of Robot Man in a suit is oddly disturbing for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I love the fa- <laughs> page twelve. All I know is I don't want to no t- talking tin soldier taking my jib. <laughs> Just had to say it. I like the fact that Johnny Quick gets in a bar fight basically over uh, Robot Man. Um, even if Robot Man hadn't saved everybody, the case as presented was overwhelmingly in Robot Man's favor. I mean, really, every, you know, like they had, like, okay, the superhero is notwithstanding, but once it is revealed that Robot Man is Dr. Crane, 
that should be kind of it. Then you have to deal with the legal ramifications that he's been declared legally dead, and you have to prove that it's his brain and all that. But, you know, you can kind of check that stuff out. Uh, the thing that always gets me about this origin is um, how does that work, <laughs> putting the, the brain in the robot body? I mean, I, it, I know it's his origin. I know you really can't have him or Cliff Steele or any other characters walking around without that, but I don't know. It's just in the 1940s, medical science wasn't, you know, they weren't putting leeches on people, but basically this man carved open a skull of a dying man, took out his brain, and then put it into a robot body, and somehow the biological matter and the circuits interact to allow him to move around and rem- and retain all his memories and stuff. Yeah, I think there needs to be a little bit more uh, comic book science applied, at least something where, you know, all like RoboCop style, where it shows that Robot Man has to ingest something, yeah. From time to time, you know, to to maintain, you know, that small. Granted, it's a very small biological part of him, but still, you know, your your brain needs oxygen and food and everything else. So, yeah, would have would have been nice to see that, you know, you was it was put into some sort of fluid or you know, yeah, I, I agree with you because the scene where the brain is being plopped in, it looks like it's just being put into a you know a cold sterile metal casing and that's it well then no that's not gonna work you know <laughs> i uh i actually like the fact that the judge ruled the affidavits from the superheroes inadmissible um it would have been nice that they had been included but i think forgive the expression i think it added a touch of realism to the story that you know it would have been easy for the judge to say, well, if Superman says it, I believe it. There you go. Well, that that's my only problem with him judging that inadmissible is I'd like to see Superman come crashing through the wall of the courthouse and go, oh, in, inadmissible, you asshole, and throw him into the sun. <laughs> you want to see Superman throw everybody. <laughs> Eventually, yes, yes. Um, but I do like at the end once the the story has been revealed and the, the fiance goes and hugs him and all that the you know slattery stands up and it's like but i still mean to prove robot man is mere property dude he just told you that the brain of a man is in this body you can't <laughs> it doesn't work that way it's not like it's a robot that was programmed to think it was dr robert crane right this is robert crane's brain Wow, I actually got that out. Uh, <laughs> this is Crane's brain in a, in a in another shell. So basically, if you can get science to prove that this is what it is, like they you know they crack open his skull. Oh, there's a brain in there. Right, I would have liked to have actually seen that during the story. I mean, it may sound a little crude, but seriously, I, I think there should have been a part where somebody actually lifted up the top of his head and said, Hey, there's a brain in there. You know, I I think that would have actually added, uh, you know, that needed element to the final decision, you know, because as it is, they pretty much just take everybody's word for that. Yeah. I I will say this. uh, I agree with you completely that Johnny quick endangers the lives of everybody (laughs) to prove that robot hero. It's, it's a nice touch. It, It proves that he's a hothead. And he's, you know, he makes rash decisions. He thinks too quickly. 
There needed to be a moment there with uh, with Liberty Bell going, "What what the hell were you thinking?" Now let me ask you this: earlier in the issue, Firebrand basically looks at Liberty Bell, and goes, "What's up with you and Johnny?" And she goes, "Well, I guess we're not together anymore." Mm-hmm. When were you really together? Right. Yeah. <laughs> That must have been happening in the gutters or something, I guess. I mean, I mean, it's it's implied, but you know me, I like things to be, you know, unless it's like heavily implied, like she's walking out of his apartment and they're not saying anything. Uh, I, I'd like a little more we're together type right. deal. I don't know. It's you just come back from the commercial break and you know she's fixing her hair and he's pulling on his boots. Exactly. Yeah, something like that. So I did like seeing Brainwave at the end. Because this is that Roy Thomas, uh, Paul Levitt style of storytelling where you have a seemingly minor incident happen in one issue that builds over several issues to become the major storyline down the road. Right. And I prefer – Steve Englehart was talking about this in an interview with Word Balloon some time ago. And I really prefer that that kind of comic book storytelling because it keeps you engaged in the title. You know, you're like, well, what the hell is this brainwave? Because I mean, you know it's brainwave because he says he's brainwave. Well, what the hell is that all about? And then you read the next issue, which we'll get to next week, and that story is continued, but it's not like in full effect yet. So I, I just like that. I prefer that. Personally. Yeah. Yeah, I like that sort of thing, too, where it's building in the background. And I love that shot of the JSA at the bottom of the last page, of page 23. Uh, Except for the Spectre, who looks a little wonky. Everyone else just looks badass, even the Hawkman, to a certain extent. Um, And I, you know, his mask bothers me, but... (laughs) (laughs) If we ever um, interview Roy Thomas, we're going to have to keep our feelings about Hawkman on the DL... (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. I totally intend to rip on him about it. <laughs> he strikes me as a good-natured fellow that, uh, you know, he, he can he can take a gag or two. He's but very yeah, nice. I met him. So. I would I would I would really want to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I you know me, I've I've never been much for the for the creator interviews, you know, the the idea comes up, you know, once in a while and it's, you know, I I usually kind of shy away from it. But in this instance, I really would like to try to get him another person uh, related to this issue. I'd really like to try to get is uh, is Rick Hoberg because I totally forgot that he worked on this title, and I'm a Rick Hoberg fan because he worked on some of the earliest issues of uh, of Marvel Star Wars, which uh, you know you may have heard me talk about once or twice. So wait, wait, you've covered Marvel Star Wars? I'm, oh, I'm a couple, shocked. A couple of times. Shock, surprise, gasp. <laughs> um, we also may have Jerry Ordway down the road as well. Yeah. Uh, thanks to, and take this for what you will, my connections. <laughs> as in, I've interviewed him twice before for From Crisis to Crisis. Jeffrey Taylor and I did. So, uh, yeah, we may actually have some interviews down the road. That would be cool. I think we need to get through like the first two years first because doing it right now, there's so many questions about the next storyline that need to be asked. So, I think my biggest, you know, trepidation about interviews is I just don't want to be like that skit, you know, from for you know with Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Remember when you drew that one issue? Was that was awesome. really cool. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to be that guy, you know. So. Remember when you? Remember when you wrote Hey Jude? 
that that was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I can see myself totally being like that too. So I was worried about that too. <laughs> I've done about five, four interviews at this point, and it, it's it, if you just treat it like a conversation, it comes off real natural. Cool. That's mine. So, what do you think about this? Oh, I got a few things on this one. Um, although it predates it by well over a decade, it reminds me an awful lot of a, of a Star Trek The Next Generation episode called uh, Measure of a Man, where they, they have to discuss data a person or not. You know, it, it does remind me an awful lot of that. Um, I was serious about the cover. I think it's pretty horrible. But thankfully, thankfully, we are coming to the end of the uh, Joe Kubert covers, and I can't. Wait, I'm sorry. One more issue. Yep. Um, I love the opening splash. I think it's a beautiful piece of art. But one thing disturbs me greatly is that I it needs one more word bubble. And it needs to be coming from Liberty Bell. And she needs to be saying, hey, thanks for holding the ladder, asshole. Because Robot Man <laughs> and Amanda Steel are just leaping off the ladder. And it's just like blowing in the wind. It's going all over the place. I mean, have you ever tried to climb down a rope ladder? It's a bitch. And these guys each weigh like what? Like half a ton or something because they're all made of metal. So all they had to do is like dangle from the bottom rung. And keep the ladder nice and taut for uh, what's your name, Liberty Bell, to climb down. It just seems terribly inconsiderate to me, you know. So now she's got to struggle and you know potentially risk breaking her neck because these guys are you know are in a big fat hurry. Um, also, and I can't believe I never thought of this before. Isn't the ladder invisible? So now you've got a dangling, flapping in the wind rope ladder, and it's invisible. That's just a recipe for getting hurt right there. That's that's irresponsible. I, I, I don't think we should have all these guys around and the word and the phrase dangling in the wind come up. <laughs> so but that's just, it's just me. Just thought. I totally agree with you about the art. It is beautiful in this issue. Really, really beautiful. I like it a whole lot. And uh it makes it very easy to uh you know to, to not miss um Ordway quite so much, you know, when, when the art team is really clicking like this, I, I like it a whole lot. Cause I, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love me some, uh, some Jerry Ordway, but this is, you know, some really nice stuff until he makes his, uh, his spectacular return in a couple of issues. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> I like this one. Page eight. And I do so love that the pages are numbered because it seems like I have reviewed an awful lot of comic books lately that don't have page numbers. And it's just it's really starting to drive me nuts. Anyway, I like this argument here between uh, Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell. uh, Panel three of page eight. He says, you'll take it and like it. (laughs) It's like, hey, you're quite the lady. Oh, dear. Yes. Wow. (laughs) He must be great on a date. But 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 my hamburger's undercooked. You'll take it and like it. <laughs> but I don't want to have sex with you. There you go. <laughs> You'll take it and like it. So page nine, panel one, we're going to get complaints about that. I guarantee it. Um, I like the comment here about that robot at the uh, World's Fair because, uh, spoiler, 
we're going to actually meet that robot at the wild at the World's Fair. So I think that's pretty cool. A little bit of I don't know if it was intentional foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. <laughs> I love that song. Um, let's see what else have I got. One element I really, really, really would have liked to have seen added to this courtroom drama, and, I, and they did sort of half-ass address it. But I I think one part I really would have liked to have seen in this a lot is when um, Chuck Grayson takes the stand and spills the beans about what happened to Robot and how Robot Man was created. There should have been one panel in there, I feel, where Robot Man actually protested and said, like, Chuck, no, or, you know, you can't, or whatever, and he doesn't. He just lets his buddy talk. And he made it very plain earlier in the issue that he didn't want that to have to be used to defend him. Hey, he, hey, he, hey, Chuck, can I, can I talk to you over <laughs> here for a minute? Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, remember that whole thing uh, where I told you not to say anything? Did you forget that? And also, on top of that, did you forget that I am comprised of metal and am super strong and can crush every <laughs> bone in your body? Did did you put these two facts together? Okay, just just asking, just asking. Watch your back, pal. Got my eye on you, and he does a little finger thing. They they do, you know, sort of address it afterwards because it it turns out that Joan isn't quite the frail little flower that she was made out to be. And you know, Rob, you know, she approaches Robot Man and says, "Oh, Bob, you know, please forgive me and all that." And he says, you know. Basically says he thought that it would be easier for her to just let him go, you know, rather than, you know, can you love me in this robot body? So it was sort of addressed after the fact, but I still feel like there, there should have been that moment of, you know, what, what are you doing? You know, why, you know, don't tell them that or, you know, don't, you know, don't reveal my secret or something like that. And it never really happens. So ultimately, you know why? Why waste the the time earlier in the issue to to have him specifically tell the guy don't say this if if it was going to be the big moment of the issue where he does reveal it? Well, the the nice thing about Joan coming to him and hugging him is you know down the road there could always be potential where she realizes okay, you know emotionally we can love each other. I can never have kids. You may be able to take care of certain functions mm-hmm. manually. Uh, but I needs me a real man. It's it, it's nice to see her accept Robot Man, as opposed to Hank. Hey, would you blow me's fiance, <laughs> who he can't talk to anymore? Basically, right. she hates Commander Steel. Right. So, it, it, and it's interesting because those two kind of hang out. So. I forget if at any point Commander Steel, if it is ever addressed, if Commander Steel looking at Robot Man going, man, you got it lucky. I at least got functioning equipment. But uh, maybe he doesn't. I, I have. This is going to sound weird. I always got the feeling that Commander Steel's nether regions don't really work anymore because of the massive amounts of <laughs> surgery. No, I was thinking about this, is that with the massive amounts of surgery that he's had, it would be kind of the same with Steve Austin. You know, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, Steve Austin's works, man, and it makes that no, 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 no sound we use it too. <laughs> Could you imagine the, the the sounds coming from the bedroom of the six million dollar man of the bionic woman? 
<laughs> and it's all in super slow motion too. That's exactly how it would be. I'm wrong. You are wrong. You are very wrong. Funny but wrong. Um Do you like that shot of oh I'm sorry, do you like that shot of Superman on page sixteen though? Yeah, yeah, I did think that was nice. I I anytime Superman shows up, even if it's just uh, you know, one pay you know, one panel cameo or something like that, I really do like that. But yeah, I do. I like how Wonder Woman looks in that too, even though her eyebrows are a little bit Vulcan esque. I like how that looks. I think Superman should have taken the time. I wonder what he was doing. At this point, you know, maybe he's like saving the planet or something so it could be forgiven, but it just seems like he could spare a little time to um, (laughs) save Robot Man's life, you know? At this moment, he was probably getting crap from Lois Lane for some reason or another, so, as Clark Kent. You're such a milksop. Yeah, exactly. But the whole thing with Johnny Quick, uh, you know, that it it really, it's borderline risking ruining the, the story for me because it's... That was hard to to forgive. The only thing that saves it is, thank God, he didn't actually cause the collapse, which is really what I expected was going to be the story. At the, at the end of the issue, I thought the big reveal was, well, you know, I thought my buddy was in danger, so I caused this collapse so that he could look like a hero. And I thought, no, that will be completely unforgivable if that happens. But instead, it turns out that everybody was just really, really, really stupid and held the the meeting in a building that should have been condemned, which seems completely ridiculous. But, uh, you know, I can go along with a gag. But still, incredibly irresponsible that he saw that a collapse was imminent and rather than shout a warning or anything, decides to, you know, he runs off, he changes to Johnny Quick, and then it's not even to act the hero. He comes back into the room to super speed punch his teammate out. And I'm like, I, what? <laughs> you know? I mean, seriously? I mean, why didn't he, like, super speed whisper to them, you know, you know, hold back in this collapse? You know, I don't know. It seems like something a little bit, a little better, a little more uh, logical or something could have been done you know, to, to tip them off or something that, you know, hold back, you know, this is going to happen, but hold back and let robot man shine, you know, instead of running back into the room and literally beating down one of his teammates so that, you know, the teammate, you know, so that robot man could have his moment. I mean, and, and steel's cool about it too. You know, steel's like, yeah, no, no problem. Clout me on the jaw anytime. It's like, no. Jackass. Yeah, if I was Steel, I'd be like, you ever pull that shit again, I'll rip you in two. You know? <laughs> I'll grab your legs and make a wish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, let's see what else I have. Add across from page 17. Let's see which page is 17 here. Da, 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 da. Flip back in the book. Add a page. Oh, Yeah. It's an ad for the official 1983 price guide to comic books. This is not an Overstreet book. This is uh, what is put out by the House of Collectibles. I only mention this because I actually have this book in my own collection, and I love the uh, the. Gar- you got it for the cover. Yeah, you got it for the cover, didn't you? Totally, totally did. Yeah, it's uh, 
you've got Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, and uh, Green Lantern, and The Atom, drawn by uh, Har- uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And it's really, really nice. I love the cover on this. Mm-hmm. I picked it up for like a buck or something at some point. but Yeah, I, I picked up an issue of Amazing Heroes yesterday that had full crisis coverage specifically for the George Perez cover. What's the cover on that one? Uh, it's got like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, like a close-up of their faces. And above them is like a little line of other characters. I'll, I'll scan it at some point. Post yeah, I wonder Facebook. if I've got that one or not. Because I, I always try to pick up stuff like that, you know, that was crisis-related or what. But I'm not sure if I have that one. Cool. Yeah, it was just sitting there. I was just like, yay. Yay. But that's all I got on Seven. I, you know, I hope I didn't sound overly critical because I really did like this issue. I enjoyed it a whole lot. I like, uh, you know, Robot Man's definitely one of my favorite characters um, to come out of this series. So I really enjoyed the issue. Um, I just found the Johnny Quick thing was, <laughs> come on, it's it's patently ridiculous, is what it comes down to. But I, I like it. And I like that this is finally all resolved. Robot Man is people. So I like that, I, you know, and then we can kind of move forward from this. I can easily live without ever seeing um, Johnny Quick's creepy, foggy Nelson-esque friend again, too. That guy's just... You, you don't like Tubby Watts? No, I do not. He creeps me out, dude. He's like a fat-faced Jimmy Olsen. I mean, look at the um, page 13, panel 2. He looks like um, a ventriloquist dummy. That's based on like Jimmy Olsen, who's had like way too many whoppers. It's just creepy. He's really, really creepy looking. <laughs> he also drives a white unmarked van and and, and asks kids <laughs> if they would like him to take their picture. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not saying anything, but I'm saying something at the same time. So, you yeah. just, you're you're very dark today, Mike. I have no idea why either. <laughs> it's it's uh. You know, from from all that order, from from yeah, it's all that special victims unit, (laughs) (laughs) from Tubby Watts pedophile to bionic sex. This episode has it all. (laughs) That needs to be the tag. (laughs) Um, Speaking of ads, uh, don't have very many. I think you pointed out the best ad in the book actually yeah i think so is there's a milk milk dugs uh clark bar have you ever had a clark bar yeah i like clark right. bars and a zagnut which i ate once and then regretted for the rest of my life you remember the old uh fred hembeck strips that dc comics used to have in them you know they're like two or three panel little strips at the end of the books usually like on the yeah. last page or something I remember one where it was a it was a Superman joke, you know, Superman related one where Clark Kent was going to open his his own bar. It was going to be called the Clark Bar, and everybody does the little Fred Hembeck, you know, squishy things. <laughs> I that was fun. <laughs> uh, we got a bubble yum ad. We have a Superman ad that looks like it was drawn by Don Heck. Mm-hmm. Um, with Superman in the case of the snake shapes, <laughs> where he's playing with possibly one of the dumbest toys of the eighties. Hi. We're not the Rubik's Cube, but damn, we'll do for the kids that can't figure it out. Because it was this little toy that you could bend into different positions. This is actually the closest we get to a uh, hostess ad. But it is not as cool as a hostess ad, therefore we will not act it out. There's no real point. It seems to me, I it must have been me and Chris Honeywell, but it seems to me we actually have acted this one out before. You might have. Yeah. 
it's when did the uh, Star Trek series from DC start? Was that in eighty four? Um, no, it had to be eighty two or eighty three because it started in that in between period between um, Star Trek two and Star Trek three, and Star Trek. Let me see. Star Trek two was what eighty one or eighty two, and then Star Trek three was eighty three or eighty four. Something like so, that. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Why why do you ask? Um I just maybe you covered it when you were Oh yeah, that's yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, entirely possible. Um we have a lifesavers ad. You know, kids I guess in this era just had a lot of cavities from all the <laughs> freaking candy that comics turned comics into cash. Thank you for bringing in the speculator market. <laughs> a build and fly, the Space Shuttle Columbia. And it's an Estes model ad. And I really mentioned this because uh, the other day the Atlantis launched. Would you believe and, I missed that? I could have I could have stood out on my front porch and watched it. And I, I well, had to sleep. So I slept right. I forgot entirely about it. I could kick myself. Mm. It's very sad, though. I'm sad that the shuttle program yeah. is ending. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, grit. We've talked about grit before. Mm-hmm. Uh, hodgepodge ad. We're apparently all pro star fighting game. <laughs> it's an exciting new martial arts game where 50 all pro karate stars battle it out one on one. Sounds kind of kinky, but whatever. A Sergeant Rock playset ad from Remco Toys. I'm sure they were just as boring as the Sergeant Rock toys themselves. I remember seeing these in the stores, and I think the problem with this is that I'm noticing, you know, you've got the Sergeant Rock, you've got the Ford Recon Post playset, River Commando Patrol playset, Action Machine Gun Nest playset. Every one of them comes with uh, Sergeant Rock. Who the hell are you supposed to fight? There's no enemy toys, you know? <laughs> Well, that's when you you paint them all white, and they're the bizarro Sergeant Rock. Yeah, I guess. And that's how. And that's who Sergeant Rock has to battle against. He teams up with Luke and Han, and they go fight stormtroopers. I guess I don't know. <laughs> that's what the Empire needed, Sergeant Rock. Sergeant Rock, yeah. <laughs> to go up against Mummy Cyborg Johnny Cash himself, <laughs> Dengar. Every Dengar. time I pass Dengar in the toy store, I start laughing. <laughs> I saw him the other day. It's just like Mummy, Mummy Cyborg Johnny Cash. That's who he looks like. Um, we have an M Network ad, oh, Atari ad. I loved M Network games, dude. They were awesome. I don't remember them. Really? Man, Astro, play- Astro Blast was the shit, man. That was a great game. I played Atari. We had an Atari. We didn't have very many games. My Aunt Ginny actually had an Atari and had more games than we did, uh, proving that people in their 20s and 30s had video game systems even in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember when we would visit her, because we visited her and my Aunt Josie quite often. I would sit there and play, you know, Breakout and... That was the only time I played Burger Time. Yeah. Dumbest game ever. But um, And on the back, we have a Lego ad. So, not really exciting ads this month. Cool. Uh, you ready to hop into the time machine and check out the other, what else was going on in the DCU? I am, and you're going to have to send me that link, because <laughs> I totally forgot. I figured. 
but that's okay. There you go. <gasps> you know, you're all right, man. I don't know why people talk such shit about you all the time. Because people don't like me, and I'm so cool, so they're jealous. Ah, oh, is that it? Yeah, that's what I tell myself. Right? <laughs> Keep cry on telling yourself that, buddy. I'm, I'm not going to bust your bubble this week. <laughs> right before I cry myself to sleep. Every night. <laughs> They're just jealous. <laughs> um, it's a really cool cover to Best of DC number 32 with Superman surrounded by enemies, including Solomon Grundy. But you also have Sean Connery himself, Vartox. <laughs> I never like cool. who is that? Oh, that's a buckler cover. I like that. I don't think I've ever seen this one before. Now, who is that big? Was that the golem of space? Is Galactic that the... golem. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Um, DC Comics present, presents where Superman apparently teams up with a house. <laughs> yeah. It's a mystery. So I think that's a, that a yeah. I don't think that's a very good issue if I remember properly. I like this. Uh, I don't think I've ever laid eyes on this adventure comics yet either. It's uh, who's the Oh, Ross Andrews, the cover pencil on that. That's pretty cool. Well, this is when it was a digest size. Yeah. Yeah, they were hard to find. I, I don't know why, but I've, I only have just a couple myself, and I've only ever seen just a few of them. Every once in a while at a comic show, like a dealer will have all of them. And my theory on that is is that they did have kind of a lower print run, and people who really liked them like bought them all, but eventually they just sell the whole lot, and that's what you find. Mm. So, uh, and I'm finding that with certain certain books, especially from this era, either they're not there at all, or there's just everything because somebody sold their collection. So, I don't know if anybody else has that uh, has that because I have not been able to find any of the I Vampire issues of House of Mystery, mm. but. Yesterday at that show, there was like an entire run. Hmm. So it's very strange. Um, I like the Justice League of America number 210 cover. Yeah. With everyone surrounding the globe. Uh, I saw both the Batman and the Detective yesterday, but they weren't on my list, and I had limited funds at the comic show I went to. And I didn't end up getting them, but I should have, because they were not all that... They weren't all that much, but I just didn't have the money. I had a very specific agenda. So, But I like that Batman on a snow-covered. Yeah, from Detective, um, yeah. And the, the Batman one's cool, too, because it's him and, and Catwoman fighting. And I always... Catwoman's my second favorite... Um, no, my third favorite Bat villain, so... I wonder who did the interiors. I'm betting that's a Don, uh, Don Newton story uh, in that. Let uh, me see... Yep, Don yeah. Newton, sure enough. Yep, yeah, I like was, that. He was doing Batman around this time. So. Yeah, I love his stuff on Batman. Very, uh, uh, very underrated artist, particularly mm-hmm. on his Batman stuff, I think. I think it's a damn shame that he and Roy Thomas never got to do their Captain Marvel work. Yes. Yeah. The designs I've seen were, were outstanding. Um, Flash 317, probably a dumb story because this is a really not good era of Flash in my experience. But it's a cool cover of, of him trying to confuse the shit out of the kid wearing the Jay Garrick shirt. Who uh, who was the writer on those uh, Shazam stories that Don Newton drew in World's Finest? Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head. E. Nelson Bridwell? 
could be. I, I got to look that up. I got to find out who did that. But yeah, that stuff is beautiful. It really is. New Teen Titans number 27 has a nice cover as well. Uh, this is getting... We're, we're like a month away from the first appearance of Terra. Where the I'm hell is... Correct. I'm not seeing that here. Where is that? It's under the Justice League cover. Oh, duh. Okay, yeah, there it is. Right in front of me. Yep. <laughs> Superman number 379. Superman knocking Bizarro on his head. I've got this one. I just recently acquired this. I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm curious to check it out. Never a, a Bizarro fan, but you never know. It could be a good story. But I do like the cover, though. Brave and the Bold, number 194, Batman and the Flash getting taken out by two of the dumbest villains in their rogues gallery. <laughs> There's a Rainbow Raider. Who's the other guy? Dr. Double X. Double X, yeah. yeah he's lame. Because Dr. Triple X just wasn't available. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, Saga the Swamp thing, uh, this was getting toward the, uh, the finale of that just storyline that went it started out interesting and then it went horrible real fast. So yeah, it went horribly, not, horribly wrong. Yeah, not not a good not a good era of of Swamp Thing right there. I like that Green Lantern cover to one sixty. I have that in my collection. It's the giant face of of Hal Jordan with the dude. Yeah, he's fighting <laughs> Beldar Conehead. It looks like. Yeah. Ready, consume mass quantities. <laughs> I like where uh, Daring New Adventures of Supergirl number three, she's fighting Tooth Decay, apparently. <laughs> it looks like she's fighting Swamp Thing's retarded brother, actually. <laughs> it's just, it shows him he's a giant, like, shit monster, and it's just uh, he's standing on the giant letters that say Decay, and she's, like, charging at him like she's going to punch him. That's pretty cool. But he does. He looks like... Shitman from the old Green Jelly video or something. That's pretty funny. Uh, nice Warlord cover. I saw what was quite possibly ominous entire run of Warlord yesterday in the $2 bins at this one dealer's table. Uh, it was like almost the entire long box was full of uh, Warlords. So, uh, Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. Those issues are hard to find. Mm -hmm. uh, what about that Jonah Hex number 68? I like you know, it's not in any way a bad cover or anything. I, I like the design of it. I love me some Ross Andrew. I just don't think that he and Jonah Hex are a good a good fit for each other. It's you know, it's it's a functional cover. It's just not terribly dynamic, and it and it just doesn't it doesn't scream this dude is a badass. It just screams, ah, eh, this is a cowboy book, which Jonah Hex definitely is not. So, yeah, and not not one of my favorite well, covers. On I that. mean, the, the detail on the pistol is nice. But, yeah. Um, However. is a superhero artist. Yeah, so. exactly. However, while that one's not one of my favorites, one of my all-time favorite comic book covers ever, uh, Action Comics 539 here, I yeah. love that cover. My only problem with it is, I swear to God, I'm not making this every time I have ever seen this cover. On first quick glance, it looks like Superman has devil horns only because the M in comics is right directly <laughs> over his head. And I, every time I catch that comic on a glance, you know, that cover on a glance, I think, why does he got, oh, no, no, he doesn't. But what it is, is this was, uh, again, this was that period in time where Superman had been split into two physical beings and each of them had literally like half of Superman's powers. 
And this was the one that didn't have a whole lot of super strength. So it's this dynamic cover of Superman imprisoned, and he's he's been chained to the floor, and he's straining to break the chains. And it just it's just awesome. It's such a beautiful. It, actually, it's Keith Giffen who I, I guess I never even realized that was a Keith Giffen. Yeah, cover. that's a that's a Giffen before the Giffen style really. Yeah, really it's, took hold. I um. I hate to say this, and, and I honestly do. I hate to say this. I uh, I really wish Rich Buckler would have done all of the covers to World's Finest, like the one he's doing this month. Yeah. Because there's some Gil Kane covers in there that suck. Uh, but this isn't one of them, thankfully. We got a nice uh, shot of Batman and Robin trying to kill Superman while a pink-haired woman floats above them watching. <laughs> Uh, it's actually a it's actually a cool cover, and I love. See, it's it's really funny. I love the Batman logo on this cover, and the Batman logo on the Detective covers. Mm-hmm. It's like I like them both equally. I don't have a preference between the two, but they're both. I look at those and I think, oh, that's Batman. That's Batman's logo, right? You know. So I mean, that may sound weird, but they're so distinctive. That and and it's and you know I didn't collect comics at this point, but I saw comics and this was all the iconography of Batman. So it it just it makes me th- it makes me nostalgic for a time period of comics I never collected in. You know if that makes any sense. So, but that's all I got for covers. It's a weird um, looking cover on New Adventures of Superboy. Yeah, it's, it's him. Very and Super- yeah, a guy is telekinetically grabbing Pete Ross, which sounds kind of rude. <laughs> like, really Superboy is is posed in such a bizarre way. That's, that, that's what I see there. Man, Ross Andrew did a lot of the covers this month. So he did that weird War Tales one with the Creature Commandos too. But pretty soon he'll be replaced by Ed Hannigan, who will do all the covers. So, um. So you want to knock out a few emails before we wrap this one up? Let's do that. All right. I've been trying to clean the spam out. It seems to be working because we seem to be getting a little less spam. Uh, I for don't today. like God. spam. I don't like spam! All right. First one here is from Jose A. Rivera. He's commenting about episode 41. Hey, we're catching up nicely. I like this. He says, yes. hey, guys. One thing I've noticed about the bad issues of All-Star Squadron, uh, even with the crappy aliens, they sure do cram a lot of our heroes into a single issue. I also wanted to mention something you guys brought up uh, about a JSA animated series or television show. When Absolute Justice came around, I remember hearing you guys uh, talk about doing something with the characters. Nothing ever came of it, but it's always interesting to think of what we could have had. You guys mentioned how uh, you would have loved an animated series of the Super Squad era. I would have loved either an animated series of the Parabek Mini, uh, done in his style as an animated series of the late uh, 90s to early uh, aughts, relaunched, done in a serious tone, maybe like the Gargoyles. That's that's interesting. What is Absolute Justice? That was that Smallville episode. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Uh, it rang a bell, but I couldn't remember what it was. It's hard to say if a JSA live-action series would work, but I do know uh, I still want a live-action series of the James Robinson Starman. That could be interesting. That could be very interesting. 
I know when Smallville and Birds of Prey were on, there was talk of a Starman series, but the changes they would uh, have made wouldn't have worked. With The Walking Dead on AMC and hopefully uh, Chew coming soon after that, it's a perfect time to adapt Starman into a series. The effects budget may be tricky, uh, but a, a lot of it is character-oriented. That, and I'd like, uh, just wants to see what the grand, I've never known how to pronounce this word, is it guignol? Is that how you pronounce that? Guignol is what I have heard. Grand guignol. Guignol, okay. Storyline would look like in live action. See, here's the thing. I, I, I like the idea as an idea, but I don't know that Starman. I am very close to that series. You know, I, I hold it in very high regard. Um, I really, really love that. And so, with that one, they they, I don't know. I'd be too afraid that they'd just screw it up or that they would change it too much. If they did a straight up adaptation, I would love it. But I I just have a feeling that they would do that typical Hollywood thing and and feel the need to to tinker with it. You know. So I don't I don't know. I'd like to and it also scares me to death that that they would. So I don't know. I I think you know it's kind of like Mr. Miyagi from the first Karate Kid man, movie, you know, if done right no can defend. Um if they stuck with it and, and stayed true to who Jack Knight was, mm-hmm. um the, the writing in that series lends itself to that kind of Quentin Tarantino uh, style dialogue anyways. So I think the actors would have fun with it. You would just have to find the right freaking character to play him. And unfortunately, I'm not really all that familiar with actors these days. The one guy that I thought could play him, but unfortunately by the time the, ser- the Starman became really popular, it was too late, would be Billy Campbell from The Rocketeer. Like, hmm. but he'd have to be younger, unfortunately, because because yeah. I think he because he played that you know Cliff Steele, not Cliff Steele. Why did I call him Cliff Steele? <laughs> Why can't I remember the name of the Rocketeer? It's Cliff Secord. Secord. That's Cliff it. Cliff yeah. Secord. Because uh, he because that was that was very much. I could see Cliff Secord and Jack Knight having a lot in common, just in two different eras. You know, two guys that really didn't want to be a hero, but they kind of stepped into it. Possibly. I think I think that uh, I don't know. I, I think that Billy Campbell's just a little bit too much. He's a little too clean cut, a little bit too much all American boy for that. But I don't know. Then again, he was also the outrageous Okana, so. And he was also a rapist on an episode of SVU. So. Oh, God. That see, I can't I can't see him playing a role like that. But I guess. I don't know. I, I, who who would I choose for Jack? I'm not sure. See, if if you were a little bit younger, like uh, somebody like you, uh, how do you pronounce his name? You, you, Joaquin Phoenix, possibly, or um, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to give that some serious thought. It's not even so much for me about like who would play him or anything like that. It's that I'd just be afraid. Like, say, like, The Walking Dead, for example. As much as I'm enjoying that show, it is really, really, really hard for me to, to, to suppress my my nerd feelings about the fact that they are just going so far off script, in my opinion. You know, I just wish that the, that the damn thing was a straight-up adaptation of the comics. I'm kind of confused as you to know? why they're doing that, though, because the series itself... Lent- 
I mean, they're doing like what six episodes once a year, so it's not like they're going to run out of material anytime soon. Oh, is that all they're doing in the second series too? Is I, just six I, issues I, I, or six I was, episodes? I was, I, w- I don't know. I don't know how many episodes the first season had. So just six, yeah. So if that's what they're doing, then it seems like you could just freaking adapt one of the trades. Right. Over six issues, and then you have like eight seasons worth of show. Of course, by that point, you know, the kid who plays Carl would have to be replaced every year. Right. Man, I hope they're doing more than just six episodes in the new season, because that's... They're filming by by noon in high school. I know. Isn't that crazy? So, uh... That's all so freaking close. It's funny that Noonan has come up twice recently like that, too, because, uh, you know, we just recently, uh, <laughs> this be a couple weeks ago by the time this episode comes out, but we just hit, hit episode 200 and, and Two True Freaks. And one of the last things we talked about in that episode, it just came up just in conversation. Do you remember a movie, Mike, it was called uh, The Sheriff and the Satellite Kid? No. Yeah, see, nobody's ever heard of this. I think I'm the only person ever saw it or something. Well, that I was reading the wiki on it. It was filmed in and, and in the movie itself took place in Noonan, Georgia. And the big finale of the movie uh, wraps up at Six Flags. And I was like, man, I, did, I didn't remember. I wish I had remembered that earlier and could have actually watched the movie while I was still living, you know, near Noonan and everything. And, you know, because I'm sure it looks pretty much the same. Noonan doesn't look like it's changed much in like 100 years. So. Uh, no. <laughs> Noonan has built up that main street of, street, street of Noonan. Uh, it just exploded. Oh, really? So, dude, not, not a lot, that whole movie theater that we went to, mm-hmm. that whole well, shopping yeah, that, center. Yeah, yeah, but I'm talking like down. Oh, you're, no. you're talking, you're talking bumblefuck Noonan. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you now. <laughs> Let me get back to this scene. <laughs> this is our tangent episode, I think. Uh, let's see. One thing I noticed uh, when you guys are talking about art. Uh, yeah, why did they stick with Cuber for the cover art? Cuber is a good artist, but not for these characters. When I was picking up the series and back issues, the covers caught my eye. Uh, the, the covers that caught my eye the most were the Jerry Ordway covers. Well, amen. Uh, I didn't have a clue about. Anything that was going on in the issue, but the cover art was so interesting, I had to get it. When I look at the Kubert covers, and this is no offense to him, I'm just not compelled to buy them. Well, see, that's exactly how I felt, because I bought all these as back issues. And the ones that I waited the longest to get were all the Kubert ones, because they were the earliest issues, and they had the crappy covers on them. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that's... It's not fair to judge a book by its cover, but I think that's why the earliest issues of this series, a lot of them I don't hold the stories in very high regard, and a lot of them I was kind of like, well, that'll be a slog to get through, and then I found I actually enjoyed it more than I thought was because you know, when they're sitting in a long box and you're thumbing through them or whatever, all you see is those crummy covers. So it just it makes, you know, to my mind, it makes the association, well, that's a bad issue because it's got a bad cover, which isn't the truth i mean the issue we just reviewed is is a great issue it's just the covers like bleh so yeah thankfully though we're gonna stop bitching about cubert pretty soon because it's all coming to a screeching halt which will be really nice uh he wraps up by saying yeah pretty much all i got for now even uh even when it's dull as dishwater issues like this 
It's still great to have you guys back talking about them. Sincerely, Jose A. Revere. Oh, well, thank you, Jose. I appreciate that. All righty. We have another email from Jose because he just likes writing us, apparently, which is awesome. And where in the hell is that it? Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> um, Hawkman. It's, wait, let me make sure I'm on the right one. Yeah, okay. Hawkman stories. Ugh. Hey guys, after this episode of Tales, I came to a realization. Hawkman stories just don't do it for me in this era. Now that I think of it, Hawkman stories in general just don't do it for me. It's nothing against the character, but a lot of his stories tend to be repetitive. I used to be an ancient prince. My wife and I are destined to be reincarnated. We fall in love and thanks and die thanks to our ancient enemy hath set. We fight, rinse, and repeat. Can we get a new formula? Apparently not. Uh, the cover, yeah, I liked the co- Ordway cover better than the Kubert cover that has Hawkman in an oh-how-I-hate-you pose, while Haster, who looks like Doctor Strange, had sex with General Zod, his <laughs> hands on his hips, no, le- no less grinning menacingly. I haven't read all the All-Star Squadron, so maybe there's a Hawkman story I'll end up liking down the road, but in general, the character is boring to me. Even in the JSA series of the late 90s, early aughts, when Johns brought him back, he starts off interesting, and then just becomes dull as dishwater. To me, that's the problem with Hawkman. No matter which reincarnation from which era, the character has more baggage than an airport. You say (laughs) we're about to get to a good era of All-Star Squadron? It's all good now, but like Michael said, they can't all be winners. Uh, And you guys are right. There is no such thing as too many podcasts. If people enjoy a comic series and want to talk about it, then why not? Hell, I listen to a Darkhawk podcast, but then again, that's just me. Anything gets me interested in comics and makes me want to buy them, I'm all for that. Good, bad, it's all relative. I'm more interested in the hunt for the comics and back issues. Sincerely, Jose Rivera, P.S., I was just about to get on a rant about Hostess carting out all these DC heroes on their snack cake boxes without Superman until I saw a box of Twinkies. Call me an asshole, but I cover the Batman box with a Superman. (laughs) (laughs) You asshole! No, that's cool. I like that. You know what's really upsetting about the fact that they put the superheroes on those Hostess boxes? What's that? That that they didn't have a comic on it. Ah, that's true. the bottom... Well, you know what they should have had? They should have had a, a comic inside, you know, like a like a mini comic, like a giveaway story or something like. And they should bring back the friggin' hostess ads in current comics. Make them just as stupid as the old ones. I think that'd be awesome. I would love that. Hell, I'd like to write them. <laughs> oh, let's see. He had a couple points here I wanted to address. One. Dude, I am so totally with you about Hawkman. However, I will point you to the. Um, the Hawkman series, the one that was going on right at the time when Infinite Crisis happened. Up until Infinite Crisis happened, that series was awesome. And I never, ever, ever expected to say that about Hawkman. Because I think Hawkman, sorry Roy Thomas, I think Hawkman is one of the lamest ass characters in all of comic books. How this guy has survived, what, like 50, 60 years is beyond me, because I agree with you. I think he's dull as dishwater. He's a dude with wings that flies around. Yippee fucking yay. You know, he's like Angel over in the X-Men. He flies. Whoopty shit, you know? I'm Superman, that's one of his, you know, 15 million different powers. I mean, everybody in comics flies. So flying, to me, is not a big deal. But I think... who I'm trying to remember who the hell the writer was on that series. I, I want to say Paul Miotti, and I'm not sure that's right. He may have been one of the writers on that yep, series. Paul Miotti and Gray. Yeah. 
It was good. It was really, really good. I, I got the entire series for a song a couple of years back. Sat down, read it all the way through until... And like I say, once Infinite Crisis happens, when you start to see the Infinite Crisis banner issues of that, you can just stop reading because then it just... it They did something, they tinkered with it, and then it sucked. But up to that point, from the first issue right up to where whatever issue... that I want to say it's right around issue 50 or so when Infinite Crisis happened. Solid run, man. It's good It's good reading. It's really good stuff. They, I, I think they acknowledge the fact that a lot of people just thought the character kind of sucked, so they, they kind of scraped off a lot of the barnacles. They ran with stuff that really worked for that character, and for a time, he was... Um, he was kind of like Wolverine with wings, but again, don't let that scare you off. You know, if you don't like Wolverine or whatever, you know. I mean, but that's kind of what he—he he became a serious badass for a while. But I, I enjoyed that, and like I say, I never expected to like anything Hawkman because I do. I think he's just seriously lame. Um, what was the other thing? Oh, about the uh, Dark Hawk podcast. Well, I, I guess this is you know as good a time as any to announce that uh, yeah, my Dark Hawk podcast will be uh, coming out next week. So be looking for that. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we decided to do one basically because of our love of the character. I mean, Dark Hawk is such an important part of the Marvel universe. He was so integral to making the '90s what it was. The Mike Manley art. Best comic art book artwork ever. I mean, Mike Manley put everybody else to shame, and I think that's a character that needs to be brought back in that original form. Amen. Yeah. Who's so. Darkhawk again? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know who he some, is. Some guy in ar- armor or whatever. <laughs> well, this this next one's a short one, so let's end with that one. So All right. Go ahead. Next one is. Come on, stupid Gmail. Next one is... Here we go. Ah, here we go. This one is from our buddy Tom Panaris. He says, Music in Podcast. says, I've been catching up on the last few weeks of Tales, and I'm very glad you guys are back. One quick question. What's the name of that first big band piece you play every episode after the opening credits? Thanks in advance. Keep up the good work. Tom... Uh, that is called a string of pearls. That that that's the title, at least <laughs> as far as what's in my music folder. Uh, let's see. Let me There's see. There's a exactly. dirty, dirty joke in there somewhere. I know. I'm trying to avoid it. Um, let's see. Which one is that from? That's from the big band hit parade. Yeah. See, you surprised me with that because I really like that piece. I, I like that one too. I'd like to get a copy of that. But it, it just kind of surprised me because I, I had sent you all that stuff, that big band stuff that I had in my own collection. And it was like, hmm, this, I don't think that's one of those. So, yeah, you, you pulled a fast one on me, but I, I really like that piece. Uh, that's from the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Ah, okay. Yeah, that, uh, that I found somewhere. That's Frank's dad. <laughs> exactly. Alrighty, folks, this issue of All-Star Squadron has never been reprinted. That sucks. Sucks ass is what it does. Makes me sad. Sad and a little hurt. A little hurt and sad. Yes. (laughs) Shut up! Okay. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. 
If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos. We love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember.